Ryan Stanton here with a SEP Frontline again at the at MEMA 23, the Medicaid, uh, excuse me, the <laughs> Michigan Emergency Medicine Assembly. I have it and I've had it right. It's just now my fourth podcast and so now I'm going to mess it up in my head. Uh, here up in Mackinac Island in, uh, uh, in Michigan, northern tip of Michigan. And joined now with uh, Dr. Jana Gardner-Gray. And we got a couple of topics we're going to hit. So a pretty quick hitting podcast for 30 minutes. And the first is the ED toolkit for hypoxemic respiratory failure. And then a little bit of um, uh, tidbits on the post-cardiac arrest care for the ED approach. And so first, let's start off, uh, give us a little background on yourself and uh, let folks know who you are. Hi. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Um, and especially speak on these two topics, which um, I get very excited about. Um, I trained at Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, my background training is in emergency medicine and internal medicine, and then I completed a fellowship in medical uh, critical care. So I currently work in the emergency room as well as the medical ICU. And um, huge passion for everything regarding hypoxic respiratory failure, um, as well as uh, ECMO. It kind of goes along the same lines. Um, so we're very excited to talk about the topics that we're going to discuss today. Well, we just need to add a couple more critical care things on there, and you'll have the entire healthcare yeah. vertical integration. You'll just do it all. It's my secret plan. Take over the, the world, yes. <laughs> do it. I don't blame you. All right, let's start, start off with uh, really just describing the four major categories of hypoxemia. Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting because uh, when we see an emergency room, and myself being included obviously, when we see the hypoxic patient hit the door, I think immediately our minds go to the first type, which is hypoxemia. Mm -hmm. And that's natural because hypoxemia is the most common cause of hypoxic respiratory failure. Uh, but the other three categories can oftentimes be a primary player, or if not even primary, be an associate player in terms of why your patient's hypoxic. And those other three are anemic hypoxia, ischemic hypoxia, and histotoxic hypoxia. So break those down a little bit. I mean, I think most of us know about the anemic uh, hypoxia. You know, really break those down and, and how we're going to see them in that manifestation. Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about the anemic hypoxia. Um, what may come to mind are the, the, the obvious anemic hypoxic patients. So those ones that have, you know, a, a GI bleed that's right in front of you, hemoglobin comes back at three. Yeah, obviously this patient has a decreased oxygen carrying capacity. The ones that may have a little bit more, um, may present a little bit more of a subtle nature are the patients that have a baseline anemia. So end-stage renal disease, anemia of chronic disease, and they live at a hemoglobin of, I don't know, 8.8 .8, and they come in at a hemoglobin of 7 and they have associated hypoxia. These may be the patients that we're oftentimes missing the anemia as the etiology for this patient's hypoxia. Talk about a little bit of, um, uh, you mentioned the, the anemia. Uh, give us some idea about the ischemic itself, ischemic itself and then, you know, I think the one that's probably going to be a little bit more uh, of uh, uh, a little bit on the grayer side is the histotoxic. Sure. So the anemic, ischemic rather, hypoxia is basically an issue with the circulatory level. So for these patients, the lungs are doing their job, right? They're getting the oxygen on board. Your hemoglobin's at a great level, so it's being carried throughout the body. Your oxygen carrying capacity is great. But the problem lies within the circulatory system. So that can be within the, the heart itself. So it can be cardiac dysfunction and a lack of forward flow, or a, some of the more subtle presentations of this can be peripheral obstruction, for lack of a better word, peripheral 
issues with flow. So this could be your patient that you have on high dose vasopressors that's clamped down, they're more vasoconstricted. It could be your hypothermic patients with ultimately clamped down on the periphery. Um, it can be you have peripheral emboli. So basically anything that's flowing, that circulation throughout the body will just decrease that flow to the lungs and then subsequently to the heart and that delivery. And that can result in a hypoxic picture. You talked about uh, here some of the histotoxin. I think some of them uh, that, are, that seem to be um, here or fall under this one are going to be some of the competitive binders. Uh, but uh, tell, tell us about some of the histotoxic type of hypoxia. Sure. In histotoxic, again, it's one of those situations where your lung and your heart are functioning well, your hemoglobin's where it needs to be, but your tissues are unable to just extract that oxygen for whatever reason. Some of the things that we learn about more so, I think, from an educational setting rather than C are cyanide toxicity, mm -hmm. um, a colchicine overdose can cause it, but some of your, your states of shock, so think about your shock when it gets to that end stage where your tissues are really damaged, whether it be from sepsis or lack of flow for another reason, those tissues can become so damaged that they're actually unable to extract the oxygen, and that can also lead to a, um, a, a type of histotoxic um, hypoxia. So let's jump into some of the tools that we have. I mean, thankfully, um, you know, back, from, back in the day when we went from a little bit short of breath to an, in, to an endotracheal tube, you know, that old education adage uh, when I was a resident that if it's not, you know, if it's not an ET tube, you failed. Um, you know, with now the various, you know, whether, you know, it's nasal cannula, high flow, humidified, um, BiPAP, CPAP, supraglottic, endotracheal, mentioned ECMO as well. Uh, let's talk about some of those strategies and implementation of management of hypoxemia in the emergency department. Yeah, sure. So again, to the patient, you've identified them being hypoxic. Let's say you've put them in that subcategory of hypoxemic respiratory failure. You've got to go down your algorithm. Is this someone who's mild, moderate, or severe? Their mouth, their own nasal cannula on them, you may be done. Um, you progress to maybe venting mask, non-rebreather, depending on what the patient needs. But you're absolutely right. So the newer kids on the block, I won't even call them new kids on the block anymore, are your non-invasive ventilation and then your heated high-flow nasal cannula. And um, for hypoxemic respiratory failure, purely hypoxemic respiratory failure, really in the absence of pulmonary edema, we're looking at heated high flow nasal cannula for the treatment for those patients. Um, there have been multiple studies. I think the landmark trial that we look at is the Florali, um, and that did a randomized controlled trial with oxygen, non-invasive, and heated high-flow nasal cannula, and it really did show a survival benefit for heated high-flow uh, nasal cannula in that sub-analysis. And I think we found that a lot, especially during COVID, because of COVID, mm -hmm. beginning of COVID, is you know innovate everybody right away. And like, oh crap, don't don't innovate everybody. And you know we saw this explosion as as people came in of the benefit of the high-flow. Of trying to keep them on that, of course, then comes the debate with our uh, hospitalist friends on how much high flow to determine if they can punt it to the ICU or not. Um, but with that, let's t talk about some of those more advanced um, invasive uh, potential, you know, because we know that, um, well, actually, to start off with, you know, that difference, that decision-making tree potentially, since we're in that realm of the high flow, it, with that more traditional uh, non-invasive type of interventions like BiPAP um, with that weighing of, of, of getting, how do we make that decision? And a lot of times I know it's going to be patient tolerance, but um, that, that decision of when to use either one, because I think a lot of physicians now still struggle of, am I going to go high flow versus BiPAP? Sure. So when we're talking about BiPAP, we're mostly talking about treating hypercarbic respiratory failure. Um, it can be used in mixed um, hypoxic and hypercarbic respiratory failure, as long as we think that a, a, an element of hypercarbia is contributing. 
And then in your pulmonary edema patients, particularly when they have pulmonary edema as a result from congestive heart failure, BiPAP and non-invasive has shown a lot of benefit. The reason it's used in these settings is basically because the inspiratory pressure and the expiratory pressure creates a difference that really helps ventilate these patients. However, the patients that we really need to be careful in terms of using BiPAP with are the patients we think are going to require long-term support. BiPAP's not intended for someone to be on it for days on end. Because you think about it, that mask on its face, I mean, working in the ICU, I have to tell you, I've seen multiple patients that have breakdown of their face. They have ulcers. It puts them at risk for infection. Additionally, if they have things like pneumonia, they're coughing up sputum in the mask. It can lead to an aspiration risk. And on top of all of that, if they have this on for days on end, they're not getting any nutrition during this period, which we know is, is essential in our critically ill patients um, in the, and important in their survival. When we're talking about the heated high flow, heated high flow allows the patient to eat. Um, it allows the patient to get a, a certain amount of relief from a ventilation standpoint, though not as much as BiPAP, and it's the go-to for your hypoxemic respiratory failure. When we're transitioning to more invasive, like when we're deciding I'm going to intubate this patient, is normally when your patient, um, it, when you've maxed out in your settings, your flow up to 60 liters, FiO2 is high, they're still hypoxic or still have increased work of breathing, or their mental status is compromised. That's when we're moving from that step to I'm going to intubate this patient and put them on the ventilator. Interestingly, you mentioned the um, eating uh, or nutrition with regard to BiPAP, and there's nothing. It's kind of like the cure for diarrhea is to have somebody in the emergency department and order a sample. Uh, they never poop again. Yeah. Uh, the idea behind they may not have been hungry for six months, uh, but as soon as you put that BiPAP on their face, they're ready to eat. Um, and I think that's universal among every emergency department. So let's go advanced. Uh, now we're intubating versus, you know, even looking past, you know, uh, you know that the idea of ECMO and other more invasive strategies are now start are permeating now into the emergency department, especially in with consideration of patients that may be sitting waiting for transfer for a longer time. We won't we'll address the issue of the long boarding times in the emergency department because that could be another four-hour podcast, but absolutely, you intubate these patients, right? You're still maybe dealing with a hypoxemic picture depending on how big the insult is. Normally, these are patients that may have underlying pneumonia, have some sort of insult, and progress to ARDS, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most scary moments while working in the emergency department is when you think you're going to fix the problem and you put them on a ventilator, but all you end up doing is going up and up and up on your settings, meaning your FiO2 is 100%, your PEEP keeps creeping up, so you're now in the high teens, and this patient's still hypoxemic. So what do you do at that point? You look at a couple things. So a lot of the landmark trials from the ICU actually had us going up to pretty high PEEPs, PEEPs of 22 and 24. So these are actually levels that your patients can tolerate, but you have to make sure while you're doing that you're not creating more damage and when I say that what I mean is that you're looking at the pressures in the lung and those are things on the ventilator that you yourself can look at or you can ask your respiratory therapist to help you with but if your peak and plateau pressures are also creeping up the magic number you may hear is around 30 or so then that means that even though you may be able to provide oxygenation at that level you're also creating damage mm -hmm. so if you're unable to get control of the hypoxemia uh, and you're seeing those pressures start to go up with your settings on the ventilator, that's when you're calling your colleagues either in the ICU or your cardiology colleagues, whoever can provide advanced measures if they're available, such as ECMO, to see if that's a, pro a possibility for your patient. That's, I, I can't even think of numbers, you know, that high, you know, start stretch, I start stressing out when we get that 10, 10 12 <laughs> mark, uh, thinking about some of those ideas of a 20 to 30. Um, you know, just thinking about the idea of a garden hose or, a, or, or balloons under extra pressure and eventually just blowing out. Um, so, you know, we've talked about, let's get some of those key 
you know, exam findings or things that we need to do as emergency physicians. And then touch on, you know, I know the ABG has really fallen out of favor a lot, uh, but, you know, I still use it a fair amount when I'm, there's data I'm looking for. If I'm just looking, you know, potentially at, at lesser data, I may go VBG, uh, or even that consideration of the SpO2, but also that how it can be fooled with regard to uh, perfusion states and some of those um, um, some of those competitive binders, uh, just using CO as an example. Um, talk about some of that exam stuff and utilization of tools when we're doing our evaluations in the emergency department. Sure. So I think it, it goes down to, you know, the, I always like to say the, the board question, you know, if you, this is one of the, the answer stems, this is always the one you go to, and it's history and physical exam, right? So for the history, I think we do really well as emergency medicine physicians in terms of focusing in on the cardiopulmonary system. But understanding that hypoxia can be any of those four categories, really targeting your questions towards if any of those other three categories, meaning anemic hypoxia, ischemic hypoxia, or any risk for histotoxic hypoxia are involved. So asking certain things, um, has there been a change in any of your diuretic medications? Meaning, is there a chance that your patient may be in heart failure and it's a flow problem and this is an ischemic hypoxia we're dealing with? Um, or has this patient been having dark tarry stools or menorrhage or, or pointing more towards an anemic hypoxia picture? So those things are going to be important. And that falls even, well, bleeds into a little bit your physical exam, right? So getting out, outside of that just cardiopulmonary system, um, doing a proper skin exam, checking for peripheral uh, perfusion, is my circulatory system um, intact? Obviously getting, you know, the uh, exposure uh, history, looking at the temperatures, my patient hypothermic, could that be a circulatory problem? Looking at those things to kind of uh, uh, narrow down your differential in terms of hypoxia with these questions you asked in your history and your physical exam are gonna be important. I love that you bring up the fact about the ABG because I mean, I, I think that uh, I may have lost some friends over this one because uh, some people are diehard ABG, others are diehard VBG. And I am one of those people that wants to bring everyone together. I think there's room for all of these measurement systems. So when we talk about the pulse oximetry, this should be your go-to for majority of patients, right? That's gonna give you an accurate number and uh, it's non-invasive, it's comfortable for the patient, so let's use that. There are some patients though that we really have to say, am I, ask ourselves the question, am I getting an accurate reading? You brought up a great one, um, carbon monoxide poisoning, met hemoglobinemia. If we think that that's a possibility, we really can't rely on the pulse oximetry. And ones that we may not uh, think of as often, your very hypothermic patient, your patients who are in very severe stages of shock, you may not be getting an accurate reading. Not to say it's always the case, but that may be the case. So. ABG, we know is the most definitive tool. Limitations include pain to the patient, it's more invasive. But if you're questioning, if you're getting that accurate reading on pulse oximetry, grab an ABG, correlate times one, and then you know if you can trust or not trust your pulse oximetry reading. Looking at the VBG, not the best tool for the hypoxic patient, uh, but offers some valuable information in terms of your CO2 levels. Um, and your, your acid base status. It's again, when you start getting to those extremes, severity of disease, you just have to be careful with your pH and your lactate, particularly with your VBG. Make sure they correlate with an ABG um, prior to moving forward. Fantastic, and I love the fact that uh, I, I probably need to, uh, getting into some of the pitfalls and pearls, you know, allow you to slide in there, treat the patient, not the number at some point, correct? Absolutely. All right, so, so talking about uh, some of those four things to look at, avoiding the anchoring uh, in your summary, uh, to just simply the hypoxemia, look at some of those other sources. You've already mentioned some of the pulse ox limitations and blood gas analysis, uh, looking at some of the underlying cause, broad differential, and uh, looking at uh, some of the types of hypoxia uh, as well as some of the management options. 
Um, I do want to make sure that we get an opportunity because you had the two talks and I actually heard part of this next one we're going to chat about. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Gina Gardner-Gray and uh, just talked about the ED toolkit for hypoxemic respiratory failure, some uh, cool, uh, fast-hitting stuff there. And we're going to talk about the post-cardiac arrest care in the emergency department. And just uh, for a moment, that's a great way, to, a great point to uh, interject because we're actually, as I mentioned, at MEMA 23 uh, here in Michigan. But registration is also open right now for uh, ASEP 23 in Philadelphia. And if you put Frontline into the uh, discount code, you'll get $50 off and you also get um, access to the virtual ASAP as well. So you can circle back to any of those that you may have missed, especially if it's the opportunity to hang out with um, other emergency physicians around the country because I think that's one of the most important parts of in-person meetings now is that, that colleague to colleague, uh, face to face, um, knowing that we're all in the same boat together. All right, let's talk a little bit about East ED post-cardiac arrest care. And um, I really appreciate you being really early on your, because apparently when these were submitted, mm -hmm. they put the date on top of it, of mm -hmm. which date it is. And uh, you got your stuff in really good and early. Oh, uh, I, made, so I made some edits, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great job, great job. Um, so let's talk about the, uh, the idea of post-arrest care in the emergency department. Yeah, so I think post-arrest care is so important. And I, I honestly, I love the fact that we as emergency medicine physicians, we put so much weight on return of spontaneous circulation. Mm -hmm. We get very excited for good reason. This is someone that came in, heart wasn't beating, we resuscitated them. We have ROSC, their heart is beating now. So that's something to be excited about. Um, what I think that we can do as emergency medicine physicians is really take a look at after receiving ROSC, how, what can I do in the ED to get that patient to the ultimate goal? Because ROSC is a goal, but the ultimate goal is to have that patient walk out of that hospital with neurologic recovery. So after receiving ROSC, are there things that we can be putting in place in the ED to make that happen? And that's, it's, it's, and I completely agree because, you know, being an EMS medical director, an EMS boarded physician, you know, there's all that, you know, it seemed that ROSC is the victory. Mm -hmm. ROSC is just the starting line. That means we've got a potential for recovery, but in so many people, we know that ROSC really doesn't mean anything. You know, with, with some of the uh, witness arrest, with early, early initiation of CPR, and those types of things, we can almost, we can get ROSC on a lot of people, and then still, you know, it's, it's, it's what the smaller percentage of folks that are going to have a functional recovery, which is actually the victory. The victory is a functional recovery out of the hospital. Um, so let's, let's dive into some of that. We've already done our cardiac arrest. We've done our uh, return of spontaneous circulation. Now we've got all the challenges. What are the challenges we're going to face and some of the things that we can do to um, hopefully promote some of that, uh, that functional recovery? Absolutely. And just to tag on, because I completely agree with everything you just said, the quote I often use with my residents, it's a pulse, not a Pulitzer. Uh, just going to the fact that this is not the end goal, the ROSC. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just part of the, the pathway to getting to that end goal. But some of the things that we um, can see in the emergency department are just a manifestation of what happens during CPR. During conventional CPR, you're getting only a fraction of the delivery of oxygen to your body, 20 to 30 percent. So your body goes into a state that we call post-cardiac arrest syndrome. The particular organs that are going to be involved are your brain, your heart, and then you have a systemic component from the systemic ischemia that you've undergone during the resuscitative efforts during CPR. So we really have to look at these three things differently, even though there's a lot, there's a lot of interplay, and making sure that we're having goal-directed therapy to best the outcomes for our patients. So let's talk about some of those differences, because right now, um, talking about some of the, um, there's always this debate, especially in EMS now, of, 
of traditional hands, you know, traditional CPR versus um, assisted CPR. Let's talk about some of the things that you've seen in terms of those methods, and because we know the the data shows that there's not a huge difference in ROSC, uh, but is there going to be a difference in outcomes, and especially for consideration in the emergency department when I've got somebody wanting us to stop the resuscitation in order to slide a Lucas underneath? So the biggest thing is to try the, to to create as le least interruptions as possible in terms of your chest compression. So whether that means that you have um, a team lined up to do adequate compressions at, a, at your the desired rate and the desired depth versus um, um, a mechanical compression device that's able to do the same thing, that honestly doesn't matter. More important is going to be the consistency of those compressions, limit the breaks that are occurring um, while you're performing um, adequate conventional CPR. So let's talk about some of these, uh, the post-arrest syndrome. Uh, you start off with mentioning um, the brain itself, pretty important, um, and it's one of our keys. So we've, you mentioned some of the things with the post-arrest phase with ROSC, the overall ischemic patterns, the low flow states, the body kind of going, going into a pseudo-hibernation -hibern followed by um, the follow-up dysfunction. Let's talk about the brain uh, with some of the things that we're going to see and some of the things that we may be able to do to decrease some of that impact. Sure, so for the um, brain, you're gonna have uh, some issues on the micro and macro circulatory level um, when a patient goes into cardiac arrest. And that's just because of that, again, that 20 to 30% of cardiac output and flow to the brain. Your brain is one of the more sensitive organs. So you lose a lot of the sophisticated methods that your brain have in place, including cerebral autoregulation. Or if you don't lose it completely, it's not functioning as it used to be. So what we may see in our patients post-ROSC is you may see your patients are comatose, meaning they're not on any sedatives. They have, they're on the mechanical vent ventilator, not on any sedatives, but they're not moving. Or they have uh, signs of a cortical or spinal stroke, meaning they're hemiparetic, moving one or, um, or one half of their body. Other things that happen quite commonly that is often underdiagnosed in the ED are uh, non-convulsive seizures. So 20, 12 to 33% of your patients post-ROSC will have non-convulsive uh, seizures. And what this may look like, it may not be obvious. So you may not see the obvious tonic-clonic jerking that you would see um, on, on another patient having seizures in the ED, but it may be something as, as subtle as eye twitching or an adrenergic response, meaning your patient is persistently tachycardic and hypertensive. So many institutions are actually sending their patients straight to EEG following arrest. Obviously, this is not the scenario, it can't be the scenario for many different EDs, depending on your resources, but having a low um, clinical suspicion for seizures, and if you're not able to get an EEG and you notice any of those signs, go ahead and empirically treating with antiepileptics is not an unreasonable approach to take. And I think the option of saying, uh, you know, we, the, the assumption years back that anybody who survives, or at least we get ROS, goes automatically to the cath lab and gets a cath, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, potentially it is more uh, functional to say, once we get ROSC back, we uh, start getting the appropriate cerebral monitoring, um, whether it be EEG or not. Now let's talk about kind of the focus of ROSC, uh, that being the heart. Um, again, also important. Um, and, you know, it seems like after an arrest, especially after prolonged resuscitation, that the heart's going to be lazy and grumpy. Um, you know, it's just not going to do its thing uh, as well, and it's not going to want to do it as well. Um, so let's talk about some of the cardiac manifestations and things we can do there. Sure. I think the heart post-cardiac arrest is me probably before my AM shifts, the 7 to 5. 
get, it's, 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 it's sluggish it's just at the very least. So what happens during the arrest is initially you kind of have this hyperkinetic heart because you've been pushing epinephrine, you have them on pressors, and then after all those medications wear off after the resuscitation room, many of us realize that our patient becomes increasingly hypotensive, and much to that can, is attributed to the dysfunction of the myocardium. I mean, it just underwent an arrest as well as decreased perfusion. So some things that we really want to assess is my ongoing hemodynamics, how much is, a, is the heart contributing to it? Meaning, does my heart need a, a boost? Does it need some ionotropy on board? Does it need some mechanical circulatory support? So an easy way to assess this is throwing an ultrasound on them, see, uh, doing POCUS, um, seeing if there's global or regional hypokinesis if you're able to do that, or just calling your cardiologist, your cardiology colleagues for an assessment of how much they think you think the heart is involved in the ongoing hemodynamic um, alterations that your patient is experiencing. Another quick thing that we can do in the ED is that because these patients have an irritable myocardium, again, their heart has just been uh, undergone a major insult, is making sure we're doing the little things, optimizing their electrolytes. So keeping your potassium greater than four, so high end of normal, magnesium greater than two, can help prevent them from having arrhythmias and again, potentially going back into that cardiac arrest state we're trying to avoid. We've got the heart and the brain uh, knocked out, but now we have our systemic ischemia. Um, the rest of the body you know, is just hanging out there. Um, so we'll talk about some of the things, uh, the considerations, the, re the post-resuscitation recovery challenges and things that we can do with the overall systemic responses to ischemia. Yeah, and I would say these patients oftentimes look like your patient, think of the septic shock patient, right? Um, or your polytrauma patient, or your really bad pancreatitis patient, because they don't necessarily have an infection, but they have the same damage and the same or end organ dysfunction as those other types of patients. So I think what's really important is keeping in mind that you have to have uh, some sort of goal directed therapy for these patients. So when you get ROSC, it's not a matter of just waiting for them to get an ICU bed. You're repeating lactate to evaluate for lactate clearance. You're trending your vasopressors to make sure you're getting a map that's gonna perfuse all their organs, avoiding any hypotensive episodes, which can worsen the injury that's already been done. Um, you're also making sure that they're fluid replete. So whether that be with a central venous catheter that you have in place or whether you're doing bedside ultrasound of the IVC, you're making sure that you're fluid resuscitating um, these patients that you have. So all of these things are basically put in place with an end goal in mind, um, as opposed to kind of having the patient smolder there for those hours on end before they get a bed in the inpatient setting. So let's get some of the take-home points, uh, wrap up some of the key um, recommendations for post-ROSC management in the emergency department. Yeah, so post-ROSC ma management in the emergency department. I would say, again, I'm going to throw out the quote. I'm not afraid to do it. It's a pulse, pulse, not a Pulitzer. So the pulse is a goal, but it's not the end goal. Really paying attention to goal-directed therapy for your brain, your heart, and to maintain perfusion to your organ systems is going to be key. And don't be, be afraid to get consultants on board. Get your cardiologist on board. Ask if there's any uh, uh, benefit to a cath. Ask if there's any benefit to mechanical circulatory support. Get your neurologist on board as well if needed. All right, give me a high five. That, I tell you what, if you listen to your podcast at two times speed, we may sell you something with how fast that one moves. It's going to be like an auction. <laughs> um, I, I really appreciate it. That's a no fantastic problem. conversation. So I think we're like 26 minutes into it with Dr. Jana Gardner-Gray and uh, knocked out two talks. Um, you know, I, I typically listen to my podcast at one and a half speed and one and a half may be pushing it on this one. Um, but definitely two times speed. Uh, and if you want to send me your money at, at that point, you know, listeners, because I sold you something, feel free to do it. 
but that's fantastic conversation. How can folks get in touch with you? Uh, contact either email or social media, or however you like folks to communicate with you. Sure. So I am Jaina A E J A Y N A A E um, on Instagram. I'm happy to answer any DMs if you agree, disagree, or any type of debate. And then again, I'm at Henry Ford Health, so feel free to look me up. Always interested in having a great conversation. Love the world of EM critical care. And uh, yeah, she's, she's hit this one uh, with enough passion that I think her watch counted as exercise. So we uh, saw it getting activated there. So as for me, you can contact me, rstantonasep.org, rstantonasep.org, at everyday, everyday Med on X, or whatever it's called today. Um, and uh, also available on Instagram, and we're not on, U I mean on uh, in the YouTube channel as well. So uh, check us out. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been SEP ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.